The Politocrat is brought to you by the great people at Anchor. Anchor is such a great place to go if you want to get started in podcasting. And it's easy and it's free. Anchor, marvelous stuff, marvelous. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Anchor for getting me going with The Politocrat. If you want to get going and be heard on Apple, on Spotify and everywhere podcasts can be, Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Tuesday, May the 19th, 2020, and this is a special edition of the Politocrat. Malcolm X would have been 95 years of age today. This episode of the Politocrat recalls some of Malcolm X's speeches, speaks about his philosophies, and also of his legacy and what he means to America and the world. Malcolm X on his 95th birthday when the politocrat returns. Malcolm X underwent so many different transformations in just 39 years on this planet. More transformations than many of us ever make in a whole lifetime, twice that many years. Malcolm X didn't start out as Malcolm X. He started out as Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska, born in 1925 on May the 19th. His father was very much a Garveyite, believed in the Back to Africa movement of Marcus Garvey, was someone who was an activist and a preacher. Malcolm's mother was from Grenada in the Caribbean. When Malcolm was small, he had a number of brothers and sisters, and he was one of those who grew up in poverty but was cared for by his parents who did everything they could to make sure that their kids had an education and an upbringing, and many thrived. Malcolm showed an aptitude and an intelligence that was better than pretty much all the kids in his school. He was discriminated against like every black person was and is. And he, like every black person today and forever, has experienced the racism of the white society in which he lived in. 
Malcolm ended up going through several phases early on and ended up in prison as being a hustler would get a young black man into trouble and the police were after him. He hustled, he pimped, he was known as Detroit Red at one point, Earl in his 20s, was a petty thief, stole on the streets of Roxbury, not far from downtown Boston. Malcolm was not the Malcolm he ended up being. He went through the prison system and ended up after that teaching himself while in prison to read, to write, and to do both of those things very well. He read books, countless books, including every single page of a dictionary that was at least 600 pages in length. Malcolm was a avid reader. He read everything he could get his hands on. He wrote a great many times. He honed his skills. He owned and honed his oratory. And by the time he got out of prison, he was an orator extraordinaire. He was befriended in prison by someone who ended up shaping him and getting him into the nation of Islam, where he would later become a disciple of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm had become a leader in the nation and strongly rumored to take over from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad as Muhammad continued on but was expected at some point to yield his position. And Malcolm's prominence overshadowed in some ways the nation of Islam itself, inspiring jealousy amongst some in the ranks of the nation. Malcolm began to carve out his own visions, particularly when there was dissension and tension among many. There was jealousy, there was envy. And when there was the assassination of JFK in November of 1963, Malcolm made a misstep in a speech that he would later come to regret when he talked about chickens coming home to roost. The way it was reported in the media made it seem as if Malcolm X was actually saying that he was glad that JFK was assassinated. When in fact, Malcolm X did not say that, did not imply it. What Malcolm X was saying was that the legacy of violence in America had been such a of a fever pitch that it came around full circle to the very person who had been the latest in a long line of American presidents to promulgate violent pro policies against countries around the world. The botched Bay of Pigs affair. All kinds of things. Malcolm was severely disciplined by the nation, 
by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He was silenced for several weeks and months. And after that, the tension grew. And soon after that, Malcolm was out of the Nation of Islam. Then there were a series of speeches that he would give. He was someone who was on the front lines against police brutality, particularly when police were killing many black men and women. And they continue to do so in 2020. To this very day and beyond. Here is an excerpt of a speech. Malcolm was very politically minded. And he became a Pan-Africanist. He became someone who really did believe in justice. Not that he was ever short of believing that. But here is one excerpt from a speech he gave. Listen to this. It's roughly three minutes long. It's about politics and about voting, which of course in this election year is more important than ever before. 22 million black victims of Americanism are waking up and they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And it, it, which means that any block any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. You're the one who has that power. You can keep Johnson in Washington, D.C., or you can send him back to his Texas cotton patch. You're the one who sent Kennedy to Washington. You're the one who put the present Democratic administration in Washington, D.C. The whites were evenly divided. It was the fact that you threw 80% of your votes behind the Democrats that put the Democrats in the White House. When you see this, you can see that the Negro vote is the key factor. And despite the fact that you are in a position to, de to be the determining factor, what do you get out of it? The Democrats have been in Washington, D.C. only because of the Negro vote. They've been down there four years. And all other legislation they wanted to bring up, they've brought it up and gotten it out of the way, and now they bring up you. And now they bring up you. You put them first, and they put you last. Because you're a chump. A political chump. In Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, there are 257 who are Democrats. Only 177 are Republican. In the Senate, there are 67 uh, Democrats. Only 33 are Republicans. The party that you backed 
controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you are not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Malcolm X in 1964, speaking about the importance of voting and the black vote and the Democratic Party. Something that I think is, of course, very relevant to this very day. Malcolm talking about how the Democratic Party essentially takes the black vote for granted and how Democrats, with all the control and the power that they had back in that time in 1964 as you heard, still did not make it a sufficient enough priority at all to talk about the black agenda or to talk about black people and factor them in when it came to dealing with getting issues passed that would assist and help the black population of the United States. He talked about that in that clip, about the loyalty that the black voting populace has given to the Democratic Party and very often has not received back a semblance of what it put in to gain that kind of support because, of course, the Democratic Party consistently gets black votes. In fact, no voting bloc of any in the United States is more loyal to the Democratic Party than black voters are. And no bloc of voters is more loyal at all in the United States than black women are. White people, by and large, certainly are not. In fact, I can even say white people, period, are not loyal to one particular political party. As Malcolm X indicated, their vote typically is split between the two parties involved, just like it was in 2016. You had 53% of white women voting for Donald Trump. You had less than half of white men voting for Hillary Clinton. In fact, less than 35% of white men voted for Hillary Clinton. Whereas 93% of black voters voted for Hillary Clinton. She got more votes from black people than she did from any other voting demographic. So Malcolm X, way ahead of his time, almost 60 years ago, talking about voting and about strategic voting and about how black people must demand more. Malcolm talked about voting a lot. And when I return, I will be playing for you a clip from one of his most famous speeches And there were several of them. One of them was Message from the Grassroots, which was really arguably his very best speech. But the speech that I like that plays and resonates so tremendously to this very day is the ballot or the bullet. 
when I return a portion of that speech from Malcolm X. Welcome back. 1964 was a turning point year for Malcolm. He had exited with the nation of Islam and went his way, essentially being forced out after the comments surrounding the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November of 1963. It was in 1964 that Malcolm branched out on his own. He ended up taking a crucial pilgrimage to Mecca in 1964. And he found himself and he had a revolutionary change. He went from believing that every white man and woman was a devil and recognized on his pilgrimage to Mecca, the holy city, that he saw people who worshipped Islam who were as he said, the whitest of white. Some of those people he recognized treated him with the utmost respect and as a human being, the human being that he was. And he said that he saw such brotherhood there among people of all races and that he saw that brotherhood across racial lines and developed a more expansive approach to humanity. And he saw white men as his brothers. Malcolm had come to understand that it was America that was the problem with its racism and its racial discrimination and racial hatred. And it was America that was being torn apart by its racism, by its hatred. It was America that had been poisoned by its own racism and hatred. And that is something that continues to this day with someone in the White House who is the chief architect and cheerleader of that system of institutional racism and his own naked, blatant racism. Malcolm came back to the United States from that pilgrimage in Mecca with a renewed perspective and with a broader worldview. And that letter to Betty Shabazz, his spouse, was a important, a key letter in his life, in his evolution. It was yet another evolution and revolution for Malcolm X. So that letter was an important letter. He had returned to the United States with this fresh and invigorated perspective, a broadened perspective. Malcolm was fiercely committed to justice for black people, racial justice, social justice, economic justice for black people, first and foremost in the United States. He had formed a brand new organization called the Organization of Afro-American Unity. That organization was dedicated to those goals, justice for black people in the United States and beyond. And the organization brought upon itself a Pan-Africanist perspective. 
the kind of perspective that reached beyond the shores of the United States to other African nations, to black people in other African nations, in societies all over the world. Malcolm was seriously talking about taking the United States to the world court in The Hague for its crimes against black people, for its crimes against humanity, for its persecution of black people. Malcolm was very serious about that. And his movement for that was gaining a lot of steam. So Malcolm had certainly made these changes and made the kinds of changes that also won him a few white allies. The few who really did believe in the kinds of things he believed in were encouraged by Malcolm to go back to their communities and teach fellow white people to change their hearts and their minds and to be anti-racists and to go on and do the work in their communities, re-educating their fellow white brethren and unlearning the toxic racist things that they had absorbed and digested for decades and centuries. Malcolm and Martin ended up meeting each other and along the way they patched up any kinds of differences that they had. They were rivals in a way. Malcolm had criticized Martin's way of doing things. Martin tried to take the high road. But it was in 1964 one of the important speeches, one of several, but this one the speech that I really have come to adopt as the favorite one that I've heard from Malcolm, and there are several that he's done. This one, at least this portion, the ballot or the bullet. And this was in a year, 1964, that promised to be a powder keg. And indeed it was. There was the Civil Rights Act that was passed, the Civil Rights Bill in 1964, July of 1964 to be precise, forged by Dr. King and activists around him, signed by LBJ. People all over the country who are black were being lynched, being attacked, being murdered, and particularly in the Deep South. And it was in this backdrop, fresh from the previous year of an assassination of an American president, with unrest coming and Vietnam and all these kinds of things looming. A Cuban Missile Crisis just two years before, less than two years before, but Malcolm gave this speech, the ballot or the bullet, in what was an election year, 1964. And LBJ was the person who the Democrats were looking to send to the White House on his own merits. He was the president, but of course he got there through a really horrific act that cost the life of JFK. Here's a portion of the ballot or the bullet. And this speech has been one that has been misinterpreted by some white people, quite frankly, who think that Malcolm 
in this speech is somehow alluding to violence. You have to read the whole speech or listen to the whole speech in all of its context. But even in this three or four minute excerpt, there is an unmistakable call that Malcolm is making. And it really cannot be misinterpreted. This is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet. It's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. America today finds herself in a unique situation. Historically, revolutions are bloody. Oh, yes, they are. They have never had a bloodless revolution or a nonviolent revolution. That don't happen even in Hollywood. You don't have a revolution in which you love your enemy. And you don't have a revolution in which you are begging the system of exploitation to integrate you into it. Revolutions overturn systems. Revolutions destroy systems. A revolution is bloody. But America is in a unique position. She's the only country in history in a position actually to become involved in a bloodless revolution. The, Ru the Russian revolution was bloody. Chinese revolution was bloody. French revolution was bloody. Cuban revolution was bloody. And there was nothing more bloody than the Re American revolution. But today, this country can become involved in a revolution that won't take bloodshed. All she's got to do is give the black man in this country everything that's doing. Everything. I hope that the white man can see this. Because if you don't see it, you're finished. If you don't see it, you're going to be coming... You're going to become involved in some action in which you don't have a chance. We don't care anything about your atomic bomb. It's, it's useless because other countries have atomic bombs. When two or three different countries have atomic bombs, nobody can use it. So it means that the white man today is without a weapon. If, you're going to, if you want some action, you've got to come on down to earth. And there's more black people on earth than there are white people on earth. I only got a couple more minutes. The white man can never win another war on the ground. His days of war victory, his, great, his days of background victory are over. Can I prove it? Yes. Take all the action that's going on on this earth right now that he's involved in. Tell me where he's winning. Nowhere. Why some race farmers, some race farmers, some race eaters ran him out of Korea. Yes, they ran him out of Korea. Race eaters with nothing but gym shoes and a rifle and a bowl of rice. Took him and his tanks and his napalm and all that other action he's supposed to have and ran him across the yellow. Why? Because the day that he can win on the ground is past. Up in uh, French Indochina, those little peasants, race growers, took on the might of the French army and ran all the Frenchmen. You remember Din Ben Poo? No. The same thing happened in Algeria, in Africa. They didn't have anything but a rifle. 
The French had all these highly mechanized instruments of warfare, but they put some guerrilla action on them. And a a white man can't fight a guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla action takes heart, takes nerve, and he doesn't have that. Malcolm X in an excerpt from The Ballot or The Bullet. The most legendary speech I think that Malcolm ever gave, and that was in 1964. When I return, a few more thoughts about Malcolm X on this, his 95th birthday. In that ballot or bullet speech, Malcolm referred to a number of things that black people had to do. It was a call to arms, and it was really about being able to chart the course, calling for a revolution at the ballot box. What he did was provide a outlook and overview of the revolutions that had been fought with bloodshed in and around the time of 1964 and just before that. And as he alluded to in the speech, there were things that black people could do and America could do without even having to shed any drops of blood at all, not even one drop. And the call at the ballot box was for black people to vote. Now, that may not have been played in the clip that I played, but that's certainly something that Malcolm was alluding to. And in 2020, black people cannot afford to sit on the sidelines as they did in 2016. Now, of course, not every black person sat on the sidelines in 2016, but a sizable number did. There was a sizable drop off from the voting of 2008 and 2012. And it was noticeable and a marked marketed drop, a marked drop, a marked drop. And it was a noticeable drop, a marked decline from 2012 to 2016. The stakes this time around are that much higher, so much higher with Donald Trump having destroyed this United States. These United States are not the same. And this time around, black people will not be sitting on the sidelines, which is what Malcolm X was talking about in the ballot or the bullet. It is essentially something that was said before Diddy ever said it on a t-shirt, vote or die. You could make the case that that is exactly what Malcolm X was talking about in 1964 in the ballot or the bullet. In fact, I would submit that that is exactly what he was talking about. Malcolm's speeches were in general very instructive. And after his pilgrimage in 1964, when he arrived back, he, of course, had been called El Haj Malik El Shabazz. That was his new name following the pilgrimage to Mecca. 
And he came back with a new internationalist perspective. He gave speeches like the one, the excerpt that I just played. He was someone who was a greater political force than he had been, even when he was with the Nation of Islam. During the course of his final year on earth in 1965, during the course of those last couple of months of the first portion of that year, Malcolm really did say a lot of different things, and some of them very prophetic. There's a great book written by George Brightman, B-R-E-I-T-M-A-N, called The Last Year of Malcolm X, The Evolution of a Revolutionary. It's a very, very good book. One of the things that is quoted from that book from January the 19th, 1965, is the following. I believe there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those who do the oppressing. I believe there will be a clash between those who want freedom, justice, and equality for everyone and those who want to continue the systems of exploitation. I believe there will be that kind of clash, but I don't think it will be based upon the color of the skin. That was Malcolm X in January, January the 19th, 1965. Certainly... Malcolm, at the moment, at least if you're looking at on that quote, may not be quite right. There are still lots of battlegrounds in this country based on race, based on racism. We note the case of young Ahmad Arbery in Georgia and the slow, painful march to what we ultimately hope will be justice for him and his family. We note the situation in Louisville, Kentucky, of young Breonna Taylor, who was shot down in cold blood by the police, who had invaded her home, looking for someone who was already behind bars. The injustice of that alone would boil and should boil your blood. Malcolm, had he been alive, would still be in the fight, even at 95 years of age. Malcolm never, ever stood for anything less than justice, the right to be a human being, the right to be a man, the right to stand up and protect and defend yourself against violent and against the violent Malcolm believed in family. He believed in respect. He took the shackles off of the sexism that pervaded the nation of Islam amongst the men in that group, particularly from the top man in that group, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who had fathered children from at least three different women in his organization. Malcolm was always looking for a father figure. And in various times he found it 
But then there are times where it didn't turn out to be someone he could trust, particularly with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm went through all kinds of ups and downs, even in that short period of time in 1965. But he was someone whose legacy will live on and still lives on even today all around the world, spearheaded mainly through his autobiography. The autobiography of Malcolm X has been translated into over 150 different languages and has been read from country to country around the world. As told to Alex Haley, the book is a searing, powerful, memorable, vivid chronicle of a life well lived even for just 39 years. It has been a bestseller the world over. Books have been written about that book. Books have been written about Malcolm. Films have been made about Malcolm. Documentaries made about Malcolm. Spike Lee's film, Malcolm X in 1992, remains essentially the gold standard. Denzel Washington portraying Malcolm back in that 1992 film which ended up becoming a film entry to the Library of Congress. But much more than any of these things, Malcolm's legacy of self-defense, personal reliance, internationalism, racial justice, pro-blackness, and a mission to confront the ills of the society around him and which he moved in and advocated and demanded change. That is one of the biggest legacies of all that Malcolm leaves behind, as well as his critical thinking ability. Malcolm X was a critical thinker. Malcolm could have been anything he wanted to be in this world, even this racist world that we all currently live in. Malcolm knew he could have been a lawyer. He was discouraged from being a lawyer. There are all kinds of things Malcolm could be. He decided to be a freedom fighter, someone who never gave up in his quest for justice. Malcolm X was somebody who made you question, made you think, and made you challenge. Thanks very much for listening to this special edition of The Politocrat on this Malcolm X's 95th birthday. Here is a few seconds from one of his last speeches, this one in 1965, just a few weeks before he would be horrifically assassinated at the Audubon Ballroom in Upper Manhattan, in New York City. You don't intend to break the law, because when you're trying to register to vote, you're upholding the law. It's the one who tries to prevent you from registering to vote who's breaking the law. And you got a right, you got a right to protect yourself by any means Necessary. 
And if the government doesn't want civil rights groups going equipped, the government should do its job.